This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media. Welcome to the Share Your Hotness podcast. Share your hotness. Now, here's your host, Lita Green. Hello and welcome to Share Your Hotness podcast with your host, Lita Green, and my guest today, Kent White. Now, Kent and I recently ran into each other again at um, Tribalry, which is a local networking group down in Utah County. So it's like, for me, it's like a trek. But anyway, he goes, hey, because we hadn't seen each other for a while. We met originally at Corporate Alliance. Am I remembering that correctly, Kent? Yep, that's right. At a networking thing and uh, lots of networking in my life. But anyway, he's like, I haven't seen you forever. I thought you died. And I thought that was the funniest thing. I came home and I was like, I think I enjoyed 2020 too much if um, people in the community think I died. And I just love that you were that honest. It just it makes me giggle every time I think of it. <laughs> well, good, good. I'm trying to make people laugh. Yes, and we weren't Facebook friends. So anyone who's my Facebook friends knows I didn't die because I post often about my children and my life. And so I just fixed that and you accepted it, Kent. Yes, as, I mean, at the, the, the once a month that I go on the Facebook all, Right. There's a there's a 5% chance I'll see your feeds. But that way, if you're like, oh, I wonder if Lita died, you can go and be like, oh my crap, and she won't shut up. I can up. double check. Yeah, you go double check. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. That made me laugh really hard. And then as we were talking, you said that you were always in training. Now, typically when people talk about training, they're talking about triathlons, marathons. Part of my brain kind of skims over that. And you were in training for what? I'm, I'm always in training to eat spicy food. So I was in training. I, I have an habanero on my salad every day. Cilantro. I'm just always training. I love is cilantro. Love is so, but that's what the training to eat the tacos. Yeah. I just love cilantro in general. My husband calls cilantro the nectar of the gods to give oh. any indication of how he feels about it. It's very polarizing. So you either hate it or you love it. Right. Well, there's that, that gene or something that you're born yeah. with. You either love the cilantro or it tastes like poop or something to you. Soap. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So poop, something you wouldn't want to put in your mouth. Right? Right. right. So good thing you don't have that and you can eat the tacos. Absolutely. But I wonder if people that like live in countries where cilantro is a part of like every dish, if that's still a thing there, or is it just kind of like a European genetic thing? I, I, I don't know. That sounds, that sounds like a Google project. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll focus on bonding right now. So, um, have I always known you in the current work that you do? Is that correct, Kent? Um, I don't think so. I, I, okay. I don't know that you've, I don't know that you, um, well, back in the day I was doing small business consulting as well as, um, just doing, I was just a volunteer for a child's Hope foundation back then. And, uh, the board asked me to come on full time about, Two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now. Okay, so, so that that's why that was kind of new to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Because we've known each other for probably eight years. Yeah, I would say that's about right. Right, right. Um, okay, so um, back when we met in Corporate Alliance, the thing that's kind of fun about it is, and a lot of the networking that I try to participate in, which incidentally, Corporate Alliance and Tribalry were basically started by the same guy with the same mentality. Instead of getting together and just being like, hey, here's my business, we actually get together to see what motivates you. 
and we talk about, you know, our, our families, our lives. And so you actually create friendships. And, um, that's nice for me as a woman, cause I don't like to go to lunch with men, but I can go and learn what makes that business owner tick. And it's much easier to pass referrals and get to know people and have strengthening and bonding connections. that can help me if I have a problem come up in my life or business. So I've always known you to be very concerned and caring about people. But again, the whole working with the child's hope, which I want to get into, I didn't remember that being your line of work, which is kind of like me. I had my line of work and then I also have my charity that we're working on starting. Um, but the two go hand in hand. So before we go into the child's hope, I want to go into what what is something that motivates you to serve and to give? How did that start? How did that process in your life start? Um, that's a good question. I, I, when I was about 10 or 11, um, my parents lost their home. I mm. uh, couldn't make payments. We lived in Colorado at the time. And we had to move in with my grandma. And we uh, received seek charity from, from our church and the bishop that, uh, and a bishop in your church would be like the pastor right, the priest right. of the local congregation. Right. And the, and the bishop, the bishop, uh, gave us some res- access to resources and he asked in return that we volunteer at the food and care coalition. And I went with my mom and we served cold Dale pizza. We, we heated it up in the, in the microwave and, we helped the, the homeless people uh, in Utah County. And um, I just remember feeling so grateful and so happy to be able to do that. And so I, I don't know, I, I've often, um, I've often spent a lot of time with, with people that are mentally ill, uh, not just my own family, but also um, Poor people uh, serving a, a LDS mission in Mexico, and, and dr- dealing with drunks and dealing with people that struggle. And um, I don't know. It's just always been a part of my life that that because I've been given much, I, I should give to. So I, I wouldn't say that I'm actually a very charitable person in in day to day life. I'm not actually outgoing in that way. I don't think about others. I'm not very thoughtful. But I do like to have ways to contribute in a, in a uh, structured way. And, and the guy that uh, started this charity that I work, I've worked with for almost 20 years, he, he invited me to get involved. And um, it's just stuck. So I've, I've been doing it since 2003, mostly as a volunteer during those years. But I was paid as an employee for a few of those years and then came back again. Uh, almost three years ago now as a paid employee. Okay. So I want to go to this idea of not being a very thoughtful person. Cause I know sometimes I think, man, cause you hear these stories about people that are driving down the road and all of a sudden they have the thought to go do something kind for someone and they like turn their car around and they go do that thing. And I compare myself to that. And I'm like, I've had that happen one or two times, you know, over several months or whatever. But there are people that I think that we put in our mind that they're doing that all the time, right? Sure. Um, so yeah, that's like the, okay, if that's like on a scale of one to 10, how many people on a day-to-day basis have those kinds of thoughts every single day? I have a friend that I think is like that because she's always 
you know, just following these amazing thoughts that come to her mind and they come, it seems like just because of what I'm, because we're really good friends, um, that it seems like they're coming to her on a multi-time, multi-basis. Like this is like her full-time job is like going right. to living people. But in comparison to them, yeah, if you have to work a job, you're probably not going to be able to just change direction and just go like, I decided not to come to work today because I saw uh, somebody that, you know, needed, um, you know, a blanket, right? And so I stopped my whole entire day to go find blankets for them. So I think we, that's kind of giving yourself a hard rap because you are choosing in a structured way to work full time, giving to other people. Sure. I guess, I guess another way of putting it is I have to actually have, so I'll just share this. I I wanted to show my wife, I appreciated her. So I called up a floral company and set up a recurring randomized time to send her flowers every month uh-huh. and after a while she's like okay uh i know that this is set up you know and this is great i thoughtful appreciate you doing this for me let's you know do something new now like it's been this has been going for like six months and i have all these bases now i don't need more flowers <laughs> especially now that flowers were coming on in our yard but uh i mean she appreciated the the the, the idea that i would set it and forget it and it'd always be fun to show up at home and say oh there's flowers here today and she, she would greet me as if I was thoughtful. And so I believe in systems to, to make my life yeah. much more effective, right? And so um, I used to have a, a and this is probably a habit I should, li- I should like to uh, renew, but of like texting people during lunch and just right. going through my old texts and being like, oh, haven't, haven't been, uh, haven't connected with you for a while. Let's, let's chat. So See, I think those are very thoughtful things. Right, yeah. It's, I guess what I'm th- saying is, I, when I'm not thinking, when I'm just sitting in the shower or standing in the shower, I'm not really thinking of people. I'm thinking of books I'm reading or other things. Like my brain does not just go to thinking of people. I'm just not that wired that way. And I, my wife is. And so compared well, to some people I know, I just am just not a thoughtful person in that context. But I think this is also personality types. But I think this is why it's really great to be, have a partner in life, right? Because my husband has different strengths than I have, and I have different strengths than he has. And we both benefit by those. I but I think he's incredibly thoughtful when the kids were little and, you know, the years were crazy and, you know, physically there's a lot of demands of me. And he, instead of coming home and being like, hmm what did you do all day? You know, that stereotype, my husband never did that. He'd come home and roll up his sleeves and start helping, but he wouldn't be like saying all the romantic words to me. He's not going to think of those kinds of words to say. Right. But he is thoughtful in his actions because he continually shows up for us as a team in life. Yeah. And I I think my wife looks forward to the day when I will just come home and see work that needs to be done and just start doing it instead of not seeing anything and just being in my own head. So I, I, I again, I can do anything if, if, if she doesn't mind helping me see when like, cause I'm, I'm in my own little world so often. So I don't know. It's hard to be married to me sometimes, but I think, I think we've, we've, we finally, we finally found an agreement or an accommodation where she's like, okay, he's not going to probably be different than he is. And I can love him as he is instead of wishing he were that different. 
So well, I think not- that's kind of a key to any marriage. I'm sure my husband probably wishes I talked less, but it's a part of who I am and personalities don't change, but I don't think we have to, I don't know. I just get kind of, uh, especially when we're having like a public conversation as we are right now, that, you know, humility is wonderful, except when we rip on ourselves, it also minimizes where we're seeing where we're doing well in a certain sense. Like there's this balance, like this tightrope we got to walk in life of, you know, self-critique to self-deprecation and how those two interplay together to actually slow down our productivity and our enhancing of our natural gifts. Okay. I can get behind that. Does that make sense? And so, you know, this is a public conversation and somebody's going to be like, well, I don't help run a charity. I guess I'm not a very thoughtful person because we're going to compare to our, you know, the best of what we Mm -hmm. see in people. Right. But your wife probably has, she's, you guys have been married for how long? Uh, 97. We got married. Oh, so like us. So um, we were 98. So you're in your 24th year. If I did the math correctly, which is not always something I can do off the top of my head. Sounds sounds right to me. (laughs) Sounds good. Right. So I'm sure that there's many things that if she were to be here, she would say, oh, no, Kent does this and this and this and this for for our marriage that is beneficial. I personally think that I was just having a conversation with somebody about entrepreneurship and they're like, Lita, you're so successful. Just amazing what you've been able to do. The truth is that I've gone to my spouse and had to say, um, I want to do this. And that means the business is not going to be able to pay us for three months. Is that okay? And that's on the low end of what entrepreneurship typically looks like. Right. And he'll be like, okay, all right. Yeah, go for it. And so I'm able to do all these things because I have a partner in life that is totally behind whatever it is that I want to do you know, to enhance who I am. And so it's not like I did it on myself. I would not have achieved the same level of success had um, I been a single mom because I'm too risk adverse. And so when I hear about, you know, like a single parent or someone without that team that achieves amazing stuff, I'm like, wow, but your dynamic is clearly working for the two of you. So it works. And my husband's systematic as well. So when you say you time the flower thing, I could see my husband doing that, but I would tell him, don't waste the money. You know, eventually too. My wife's very practical that way. (laughs) Not her love language. Hers is service, which is a hard one for me. His, my husband's is acts of service. Mine is physical touch. Totally easy for him because all he has to do is touch me. And I'm like, thanks. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Words of affirmation, physical touch. Those are easy for me to, to, to give and receive. So words of affirmation that takes thoughtfulness. Yeah. 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 Okay. So do you like how I turned this into a thanks for being humble, but maybe not so humble. You know what? This is your show. You can, you can do it. <laughs> this is your format. I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride. So I'm excited to well, sharing this your journey hotness, together. Sharing your hotness, you know, is an analogy to what makes you unique and special. And, and yeah. I'm excited and I love your honesty. I mean, as I started the podcast, I thought it was hilarious that you're like, I thought you died. And it was really nice that you weren't like, ah, dang it. You were happy that I hadn't died. (laughs) If you, if you had been like, you're still here, 
dang it, then it would have been rude. <laughs> sure. sure. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. You know, keep that to yourself. Right. You know, I had someone recently who, um, you know, it was, it was okay. It was a family member and they're like, you're still married to him. And I'm like, not constructive. Thank you. <laughs> you could have done better this whole time. Well, they're just upset that my husband and I won't um, fund their life. So, <laughs> you know, but I'm like, yes, still married to the man that um, helps me have a backbone to not keep giving you money like we did for years. Right. <laughs> so kind of funny. Okay. So let's talk about, because I think this is really amazing what Child Hope Foundation is doing. And it's really close to something that I'm passionate about. Um, children, I think, um, you know, a barometer of how society is treating our children and how we're focusing on our children is a barometer of a, that a society's ability to continue. Mm. So, you know, very important what you guys are doing. So I'll let you go into it and then we'll talk about my passion about what you're doing. Okay. I'll start with what we, what we do today. We're, we're a startup in a lot of ways. A few years back, back when the board asked me to come back on full-time, uh, there's, there was potential for, for significant funding to cover our staff. When people donate to us today, hundred percent of those donations can go straight to helping the kids. And so um, we don't have, we don't have to worry about, you know, fundraising for our staff, which makes a huge difference. And the, the main goal is to help kids get into a healthy environment so that then they can prepare to become successful adults. Whatever we're you want to call about kids that have been in labor camps, um, you know, um, sex trafficking, Uh, Yeah, just even even if you want to look at what we call foster kids here today, Mm -hmm. uh, a kid, a kid that's removed from their families or because they've been neglected, their parents are into drugs or or they've been physically or or sexually abused. That's very common for all of these kids in these. Right. I have family members that fall into that. And so it's something that the ramifications of not having a secure home. Right, right. And, yeah. and um, the, the goal is not to just provide a safe home for these kids, but actually help them heal and move forward and see themselves as people that can, um, they call it self-efficacy in the psychological literature, that people that can see themselves as, because I haven't given much, I too must give. Like I said earlier, like kids need to see themselves as people that can contribute, not just people that need to be served. Absolutely. And, and once they can contribute and they see that they have value to others, um, then they can actually have happy, healthy families of their own. And they can learn to the technical skills of reading and writing and, and, and um, do well in academics, but healing and then preparation for, for long-term adulthood right. is vital to, to that. And so the biggest challenge we've faced as an organization is that it requires requires an army of social workers in, in most countries to, to do this. And, and I wouldn't say that the United States is like the best in the world at this at all. No, no. How we do foster care and social work. Um, but the, one of the th- interesting things just based on our work with orphans over the years is that orphanages in most countries are where these kids are getting care today. And as countries transition to foster care or to other forms of care for kids, um, these things take decades. They don't, they don't happen very quickly, especially with corrupt governments. Um, 
it's it's probably not going to happen for a very very long time. Because, well, especially because we're talking about children that are so easily yeah. silent. Yeah, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. They, they, know, they don't vote. Yeah, <laughs> they don't yeah vote. well, they, and and yeah, they they not only don't vote, but they can be manipulated to say what the adults in their life want them to say. Precisely, precisely, and and that that's the hardest thing about working with kids is that it's such a there's so much opportunity and there's so many bad orphanages and bad homes where kids are not given the resources that they need and that they're exploited by people that should be their caregivers. Um, it's just, it's just a really sad environment for, for the world's even, children. <laughs> you know, it's one of those, those questions when, you know, I die and go to heaven, that's on plan anyway, is to go to heaven. Right. <laughs> um, that I'll be like, why did I only get two children? To, that I could, you know, physically raise. And then, um, <laughs> you know, there are people that have nine kids, lose some of them to foster care. And I'm specifically speaking of someone who I won't out by name, who beat the crap out of them that, you know, the spouse was carving the F word and giving them to men, um, you know, and I'm sitting there looking, going, <laughs> you know, why, why could I get more kids? Mm-hmm. And because I, um, I think that children are the greatest asset right. that, well, and, that our world has and how we're treating those children or not treating those kids. Um, you know, in the Bible, it says it'd be greater that a millstone be, you know, wrapped around someone's neck and they'd be thrown into the depths of the sea than to hurt a child. And uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I agree with that. It just, in this, you know, it, how, how people can look the other way, what that must do to the human soul. Right. And, and this is, I mean, this is, this is heavy stuff in the fact that kids are adorable and fun and very resilient and sweet, even when they've had terrible things happen to them and uh, until they're teenagers, and then they become completely jaded and, and, and become very uh, antisocial and, and all these things. And so helping kids before they hit some of those more, um, jaded years of disillusionment is vital, but there are homes that specialize or orphanages that specialize in these, in these kids that are like the ones that other homes won't take or, and we have group homes in the United States because foster care doesn't work for a lot of these kids. So we have orphanages here in the U S even though we call them something different. Um, but the, the point is that, that institutionalized care will never help these kids. They, mm-hmm. they, they can't have somebody that, sees them as a number, they have to see, they have to be seen as individuals with their own issues and they have to, they have to be able to, to develop their own desires for becoming somebody in the, in the right. future. Right. Right. And there's, there's just, there's just so much negativity out in the world. And um, as I've been visiting orphanages, I visited dozens of orphanages over the years and there's some terrible, terrible places, uh, especially in Haiti, just terrible homes. And, um, the majority of the work that we've been doing in Mexico, uh, we, we've run into some amazing, amazing uh, orphanage directors and caregivers. And the problem is that how do you know that these homes are doing what they're supposed to be doing for these kids? And I realized that part of the challenge that we faced was that until we had something of a certification program in place, we could never actually get the, the trust needed for donor, major donors to step in and, and help these kids. And so. Well, here's um, the thing, Kent, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. You talked about how you need systems. 
Okay, so let's imagine I'm in charge. I go in and be like, okay, everybody needs nine hugs a day and kind words, but my brain doesn't think in systems. I've literally had to hire people to come into my business and be like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Where are the systems? The assistant that I have, very systematic, right? Because that's my weakness. So if I were to step in to do your job, I would not be able to, my brain doesn't think in that way. And so put those two together, right? Which I'm sure you have people who are like, everybody needs nine hugs, right? You have those people that are like, just love everybody, you know? But the systems are what organize this and make it possible those big donors will come in. And so we can't underestimate the value of, you know, teamwork, (laughs) right? How important that is, because I know, you know, I've seen lots of different organizations. I was a national trainer for one for years. And over time, I saw the weaknesses of the, or the personality traits, even of the CEO, who was my friend, who I value very much because the organization got bigger and bigger, her emotional gaps became exploited which ended up hurting the company. And I would say, look, and she'd say, no, no, no. She could not see it. And everyone around her um, told her what she wanted to hear. And people like me that didn't tell her what she wanted to hear, she started distancing herself. And I was like, it was really easy for me to be judgmental and be like, wow, I can't believe she's not seeing this. And I'm like, wait a minute, look at my desk right now. My desk, you know, has this pile and this pile because I work in piles, right? Like if it's not, if my desk is clean, I'm like, oh great, I don't have any work to do, (laughs) right? And that's a weakness that's fine at my level of business. But if I became, you know, the CFO of a thousand employees or the CEO of a thousand employees, that'd be a major problem, right? So your, your systematic brain, let me chew on the problem because I'm pretty sure I've cried once in this podcast already that if I were to go to those orphanages, I'd be like, how many of them can I fit in my house? Yes. that's Frankly, you need someone who can go in and emotionally be touched by it, but not, I think it would probably, you know, the times I have gone, it just, it just rips me up so much, you know, to know that these kids are not being loved. And so in a way it would shut me down if I were in your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my mom's never visited the orphanages because she's wired that way as well. Um, and yeah, I, I'm. it is emotionally taxing <laughs> on me when I do go into homes where the kids are in a bad spot. Um, one, one of the things that we've always done with our, our service trips is we, we work with homes where things are already working rather than taking people to where things are broken and just breaking their hearts. That's not... That's right, not, it's right. not part of our program and it, it's not helpful in, in, yeah. in my mind. I don't and think it actually solves problems. Yeah. That's something amazing you're doing. Cause you're, it's about hope. Yes. And, um, you know, I, because of my work in sexual abuse prevention advocacy, uh, I know too many stories and it literally is something that I just have to like, okay, okay. You know, not purge because we need to remember, we need to hold that, you know, like the, the Holocaust, we need to know that happened. So we never let something like that happen again, even though two Holocausts have happened. Well, three, if you count both the Armenian Holocaust, um, but you know, the Rwandan Holocaust, um, you know, um, oh, and I'm completely forgetting, um, you know, Vietnam and Pol Pot, right? 
Cambodia. So Holocaust keep happening, even though we say we're not going to let it happen again. And children keep being abused, even though we say we're not going to happen again. But we need to be aware that not everybody lives in this perfect little bubble. Right. Like during the pandemic, people are like, oh, I'm fine. And I was fine. I'm like, it was living my best life. I love it. My family was locked down with me. I couldn't imagine anything better. But I can also go back to a time in my life where that would have been a very bad thing for me to be locked in my home because of, you know, sexual abuse and, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it gives me a sense of gratitude, but they need that systematic brain. So there, that's what I say. This is, this is, this is interesting because I mean, my team, we, we're, you have to be, you have to, I don't know. It's like work in the ER, I think in a lot of ways. Um, my team has a really great sense of humor. Um, we, we joke a lot about things that probably would be like, that's not tasteful. That's, that's not, that's not cool. You know, but the, the reality is when you're dealing with really heavy things, that gallows humor is sometimes the way that you deal with, with um, the sad things of life. Yeah. And the reality is if, if, if it's about, if it's about your getting your personal needs met through these kids, you're going to, you're going to fail at this job because nobody's that strong. Nobody's that resilient. And the best thing that you can do for these kids is be emotionally healthy yourself and not need them yeah. to love you and not to need, need to save them. Um, you to, to very, actually help them. very strong point, not need them to love you. Let's dive into that. Cause okay. I have a lot of juicy thoughts there. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, all these kids, all these kids end, end up becoming your, your, your friends. And um, I, the, the, the approach that we've talked about is you're their aunts and uncles. You're not their parents. You are that aunt or uncle that's cheering from the sidelines. That's fun. You're, when, when you show up, you take them to the zoo, you have a good time. And, and you're just a fun friend in their life. That's cheering them on from the sidelines saying, Hey, I'm excited to hear what you're working on. Show me your artwork. What are you doing at school? And see you again in six months or a year or whatever. And they just know that people are there that love them and they're rooting for them and send them presents occasionally, but they're not, they're not their parents. And um, our goal is not to, is, is to help provide stable, loving caregivers that can actually uh, help these kids succeed in life. Right. And so right. Our, our goal is not to, it's not to get all these kids adopted because that's not actually possible. A lot right. of these kids are, their parents are drug addicts and can get their parent, their kids back. And some do, mm-hmm. and that's, that's great. Um, but these homes are just, I mean, you got to think of it almost like the difference between foster care and, and an orphanage and think of it as something in the middle for a lot of these places. Well, and the volunteers you're looking for are not getting compensated to be a mentor, which makes it different than, you know, um, foster care where some of those homes, and I have two nieces that were raised in foster care, literally took them on because it meant that much more money. Right. Right. And And not all foster care homes are like that. I mean, there are people that I think have a straight, straight boom to the big guy in heaven, you know, because they are amazing foster parents. And yes, it is a way that they provide for themselves. I mean, uh, one lady that we know, um, do you know, Holly Richardson, uh-huh. 23 kids have come through her home. Yep. Yep. I'm like, Oh my crap. They're amazing. And this is what, from what I understand, 
you know, how they make a living, but all of those kids are like showing by evidence by how they're turning out that they were taught the love they needed. But going back to this concept of not needing kids to love you, I think is so important because we don't have, if we, even if we are parents, we can't have our children for the purpose of validating some part inside of ourselves. Right. And that's, that's devastating. It's been very, very hard for me this last year is um, I have a a daughter that's going through a lot of challenges and me having to figure out how to let go of some of those, like in our family, we do this or expectation is this and, and figuring out, and I don't, I still don't know how to approach this completely, but the, the, the expectation of like, I have expectations of you and I love you unconditionally as you are, you know, and, and that, that, that tension, I don't know that we can ever yeah, resolve I it. And I think it's productive in a sense. Like, I think it's yeah. really productive to love people unconditionally and to expect them to grow and be, do more than they've done up until now. But it, yeah, it's a balance. The balance is hard. Sure. Yeah. Very challenging. I mean, any parent that's being honest, you know, uh, you know, for me, that first moment of, oh my crap, I can't solve all the problems is when my son had come home from school and he had bruises up and down his chest cavity where he'd been pushed to the ground and kicked repeatedly by some of his, you know, AKA friends. Right. Sure. Sure. And my first thought was to go beat the crap out of those kids. For sure. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's illegal. <laughs> but, you know, but that was my thought and my impulse. And I did not act upon it for anyone listening and having to help my kid navigate through that. And then my son, um, both of my kids have had, you know, what um, people would call different crises in their lives, crisis of faith, crisis of self-esteem. And part of my ego is like, wait a minute, I'm a confidence expert. How are my kids having one second of, and I'm like, oh, that's my ego that of course my kids are going to have normal experiences, just like I have normal experiences, just because I'm an expert in one thing or another, people come to me for advice. And I think that's a trip up point is when we start trying to get our kids to behave in a certain way, because it's a reflection on us. We have to always check that. Right. And that, I'm, that's, that's the hardest thing about kids in general you want to shape them and you want to provide opportunities, but at the same time, kids move at their own pace and they'll never be who you want them to be exactly. And yeah. releasing and letting that go is, is the work of maturity. And that's, I don't and know, I'm, I'm becoming more mature, <laughs> but not needing them to love you or to sh- turn out the way that you need them to turn out. Um, and then, to, I mean, that, that's mourning that happens, uh, at least for me, uh, like there's, there's a lot of, waking up at two or three in the morning and just being up for a couple of hours and just mourning that loss of that child that you loved or that you wish were not experiencing some of the pain that they're experiencing or what have you. Right. Yeah. And, um, and it never ends. Exactly. And it's almost like losing, it's almost like losing a, 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 a friend. It's like a funeral in some ways that you lose people along the way. Um, and then you have to fall in love. It's almost like your marriage, though. You didn't marry the same person that you're married to now. And you have to decide to keep loving the person that's in front of you, not the person that was, and 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 releasing the past that way. And that's hard, hard for me, but that's been my big lesson this year. Yeah, that's those are, I mean, those are gems because uh, I, my husband is so consistent. It's kind of freaky how consistent he is. So you're saying yet, he's not growing at all. He's not changing at all. He's stuck. <laughs> no, he's not. He, he, no, he's not stuck is what I'm saying. He's just, 
he is a rock. He is someone who, who does the things and he just, he keeps doing them and incrementally pushes himself. And he's amazing. And I have gone from, you know, I want to be a domestic goddess to, I want to run this empire. I want to go do this. Oh, I'm going to start a charity. You know, I'm doing all these different things. And so he's had to have a lot more compromise being married to me and a lot more kudos for being like, okay, soar, fly, do your thing. Right. But, um, I knew when I married him that he would never, he would take a lot of abuse. He would never leave me. You know, he would never leave his commitment to God, that that was just who he was, that he mm-hmm. was just going to do that. And I think there are very few people like that, that are that this is who I am. And it's how I'm always going to be kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and children, we don't get a special order them. We don't know who those personalities are. You can't divorce them either. And um, I mean, you can, you can, but that creates, that doesn't solve anything. I've seen that happen where parents have cut off kids and it's not constructive. I, my own parents have told me a couple of times I'm disinherited and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, okay. You know, like there's no money. I don't know what the threat's about, but you know, and in all fairness, I have, you know, broken family rules because I have um, altered and changed and become different over the years, which goes back to how awesome my husband is. I think as a parent, it's so important to recognize that these people that our job as a parent and as our job of citizens on this planet are how we treat our children and let them become their own adults and giving them love and care. So as parents, you know, that's the front line for us. And in your organization, you're giving people a chance to be second, third, fourth ring of support for these kids. My post just today, right before we got on that I, um, was talking about how the lunch ladies, when I was growing up, because um, I worked in the lunchroom from the first grade to the eighth grade, and in order to work in the lunchroom in high school, you had to have special needs, which uh, you can make an argument for me on that, but not the kind that got me qualified to work in the lunchroom. But that was the food that I could count on every day was having that that mm-hmm. that meal, and they gave me extra food. But I gained so so much from these ladies that would congratulate me for what a hard worker I was. Mm-hmm. And they gave me extra dessert, which I blame for my chocolate peanut butter addiction to this day. But they told me and, you know, the janitor that was painting the little lines in between the bricks and let me help. And I was like, I'm an artist. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, and that's really what the Child Hope Foundation is doing is trying to help make find kids, not not only in America, but around the world that need our support. What are all the different countries you guys are in? Remind me. So, so right now we are, this is a tricky question because we are expanding, but we expand through partners. So we're, we're actually in the middle of some partnership. Uh, because work. you're sharing, partnering with your accreditation program to help. Yes. 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 So right. you're not running them. People Correct. there in country are, but you're helping Correct. them. Here's some systems that could be better. Like, Oh, a business consultant. Correct. In the business Correct. of wearing healthy healthy people. Yeah, and that's exactly right. We have something called the Thrive Assessment, which was actually created by another organization called Miracle Foundation. They, they work, most of, most of their work's in India. Um, and they created this Thrive Assessment. Uh, we, we, we approached them like four or five years ago. They said, yeah, run with this. Uh, let us know what changes you make to it and we'll all improve together. Uh, we created something called the Orphanage Improvement Roadmap. After they do the Thrive Assessment, which measures like 15 different areas of the home, 
then we, we create like a gap mm-hmm. analysis where they're either red, yellow, green, surviving, sustaining, or thriving in these various categories like nutrition, education, um, facilities, th- those types of things. And then uh, what's the plan to help improve those various areas, right? And so this is from a, a systemic uh, process for the homes themselves. And in a lot of these countries, I mean, none of the orphanages that we work with are have any government funding whatsoever. They're all oh, wow. funded mostly by, by Christian uh, churches and uh, just private donors. And so our, our part in this is to make it very easy for, it, it's sad. This is what my team, I, I'm constantly asking them to be, we're gonna be the best in our space of reporting. And nobody wakes up in the morning and is like, I'm helping develop reports that are amazing, right? But that's, <laughs> but that's, actually, that's actually like what, what makes me excited. Like we, when you're talking about like, what gets you up every day. And for me, it's actually knowing um, that I can recruit great team members and build a team that loves each other and can play well together. And uh, can can do it with very low ego, and then can focus on getting the donors and the people that actually make this thing happen, getting them back the reports that they can show that them they show them that they are having an impact in these individual children's lives, and demonstrate to them that they're winning. And that's really where I want to differentiate the way we run our charities. Like I don't want to call somebody up and be like, "Hey, can you give us more money?" I want them to be coming to us and saying, "Hey." Um, how can I do more? I'm seeing the impact. I, I want to do more. I want to do more. And so I want to demonstrate that we're good stewards. And um, in business, we call the, this is the fourth step of sales, which is customer success. After you close the deal, somebody's got to make sure that they're actually using the product. Right, um, right. My, and they're seeing the experience. result of the Correct. product. Like if yeah. it's, you yeah. know, in my case, a moisturizing cream, right? right. That's you exactly know, right. That side, or they like my book or something like that, right? Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. And so, so my goal is to is to build a charity that's excellent at reporting. It, I love as, it. As lame as that might sound to some people. No, I don't um, think it's lame at all because you know, just like you mentioned earlier, that um, because of the donations you've received, that when people donate, hundred <laughs> percent can be going to the actual, you know, case to help the child. It's so frustrating when I've given to charities in the past and then go to find out that 30% of my donation actually impacted what I thought it was doing. Right. So frustrating because I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to give to organizations. And so I've decided it has to be over 90% or I won't give. Yeah. And and, I can't give to everybody. Yeah. And and we're actually a startup in the sense that we're trying to grow and become a global organization and become a global authority on, on orphan care. Um, And that's going to take another five to 10 years at least before UN is inviting us in to do some presentations or what have you. But my goal is, is to create an organization that is almost like eBay, where you don't have to worry about how your donations are impacting because the reports are so clear. Like, I mean, before eBay, people forget that you couldn't actually just send a money order across the country and expect the baseball card to come back and return. You know, it's just, right. it was just scary right. to do that. And there was no accountability. Really that's, that's really what I'm trying to create um, with, with our systems is the opportunity for people to trust that they're actually helping kids move forward in life. And we have a long, long ways to go still. We have a lot of infrastructures to build yet, um, especially for our child's health plans, which is, you know, the therapy and the, and the tutors and the, the mentors and, and finding the right caregivers and helping those folks get the, uh, get the training and the healing that they need so that they can be better parents to the kids. I mean, I often have told my team that we help orphanages go from yellow to green 
we don't work with red orphanages in the red. We don't, we're not turnaround artists. We're not, our job is not to like heal all the bad orphanages out in the world. It's to find the great ones and get them more resources because they're already making a difference in the kids' lives. Right. And, and, and make that difference. So we get orphanages moving them from yellow to green so that they can get their kids from red to yellow. And, and they can take on more kids. If, if that's, if that's their goal, like we, right. we don't push, we don't push more kids in, on, onto them. Um, some homes, they, they have 15, 20 kids and that's where they're comfortable. And it's, it, it's a tight home and, and some places want to have 50 to hundred, but our, our model is, is generally speaking that we have um, that every group, like you got the 10 to 12 year old boys, they all have a, a dorm parents that, that live with them and are foster parents to them. And they can still benefit from the, some of the, um, the blessings of, you know, economies of scale in, in right, a larger right. facility, but that they get individualized attention and that they're not institutionalized and that they can participate in the community and go to school in the community and all these other things. Um, other kind of, like we, we still don't know how we're going to do it in other, in really, really rural or poor countries where they, they have a huge orphan problem. Um, but we, luckily our goal is not to figure that out. Our goal is to find the best actors and to elevate them so that people can trust and support them. So the money will actually go to helping them rather than, um, people donating and hoping that their money is making a difference, but it's, they're not sure if it is. So our, we're, we're looking to find the partners that run four to five orphanages in these countries. Like in Bulgaria, we're working with One Heart Bulgaria. Um, to, to, they've, they've started implementing our Thrive Assessment. They help a lot of orphanages in Bulgaria. These orphanages are all government funded and they're you know 15 kid to 20 kid orphanages. So they're more like group homes. Um, right. And, and they don't actually give them any money to the orphanages. They give zero money, but they do hire their babas, the grandmas that will come in and read to the kids and they have right. yeah, therapists and other those. resources. Yeah. yeah. So, so they've got really cool things going on. And it's just like, how do we all learn together and, ele- and elevate all these homes across the world so that there's more best practices uh, being applied and people are learning from each other and, um, and the kids are actually getting the help that they need because kids are vulnerable. They can't help themselves. Um, this is not development. We're not going to help them become self-sufficient orphanages. Like you, uh, those are called sweatshops in, in most countries. Uh, right, right. right. And, so, so, and people so, are a lot of times giving their kids to these, not knowing they're a sweatshop. They're saying, oh, right. their kid's going to get an apprenticeship. Right. Yeah. So, so, so there's all kinds of issues. Like children are just tricky and, um, and they're, they're kind of a black hole. I mean, I've got five kids of my own. They've never become uh, profitable, I, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> they've always they've always been a financial dream. Maybe back in the old days in the agricultural economy, they, they would have been more profitable. But well, um, and then we had, you know, such a high mortality rate among children. Yeah, yeah. And thank God we don't have that in this country, which you know that makes me want to cry, <laughs> you know, because people would have a lot of children just to try to keep their farm going. Yeah. And then maybe, you know, half would make it alive to adulthood. Yep. You know, yeah. and I don't no, even no, know if that's profitable. It's just, I think it's natural to the humans, to any species, right? To propagate, to make more of what we do for survival of the species, right? That's right. And, that's at least, right. you know, we have a higher rate than, I don't know, guppies or whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, but, you know, we're the only animal that has the ability to reason. And the sad thing is, like, when the turtle chomps up a little frogs, you know, tadpoles, it's not doing it maliciously. It's just doing it to eat. And sadly, humans have the capacity to grab up these tadpole humans. Yeah. 
and do it with malicious evil intent. And that just, at the same time, the human animal is capable of love and nurturing and self-sacrifice. Right. And, you know, that, that's not a debate. It's going to be um, a conflict. that's going to be, you know, solved, you know, ever. Right. I mean, well, and I think that's the point. Like this problem does not get solved and like, let's go upstream. Let's, let's, let's fix this. Like, let's, you cannot fix the human condition. I think this is, I'm a little bit of a conservative on in this, even though I have a lot of liberal tendencies, I, I don't believe that you can prevent everybody from never doing drugs or. Uh, right. Well, that's authoritarianism. I mean, right. in, in North Korea, I'm sure they have a really low drug use. And you know, in um, certain countries where they're flinging people off of buildings for having, um, you know, being a gay or lesbian, and then they're like, oh, we don't have an LGBT, and they say problem, which I'm just like, whoa, whoa, words here, right? Um, you know, yeah, I mean, you're not going to get all humans to do all the things you want unless you are, um, you know, of the Kim Jong-ul family. That's right. That's exactly I don't right. want to live like that. Yep. And so, so, so as a result, what do we do with these kids? Um, I mean, being a foster parent is a calling, I think for a lot of people and they, they step up and they, they love children as their own. Some of us are not either inclined that way. We don't, our skills don't lend that way, or we're not as, um, we're just not as, as resourceful or we haven't healed enough to be able to have that much love in our hearts or what, whatever reason. Well, and I think also um, it takes having extended family and support you know, to raise children well and having limited um, extended family would, I think, make it harder to be a foster kid, you know, foster parent. And so it's just, you know, again, everything goes back to how valuable the family is. You know, that's, that's the unit that has been used since humans have existed in every single culture to raise functioning humans. And when the family breaks down, society pays a price for that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, so what are the systems that are in place to help kids when the family does break down? Because families will break down and, um, and children will be abandoned or orphaned for any number of reasons. And sometimes they will get reunited with extended relatives. Um, and there's lots of uh, groups and, um, and, and, and a lot of governments will try and place children with extended relatives, but lots of relatives will refuse to take the kids to. Um, like we, there, there, there's no perfect solution is, is, is what is as much as we want to fix things, as much as we want the world to be like, oh, that's a solution. Let's, let's, let's solute, solve yeah. this thing, right? The solution is everybody be nice. <laughs> exactly. The, the, the reality is we're talking about mitigating bad decisions of other people and there are no great solutions. There are just less bad solutions in so many of these ways, right? And so right. Um, I, we, 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 I've, I've looked at many homes orphanages. And I'm like, oh man, this is such a bad home. And then I look at the streets that these kids came from. I'm like, oh, it's actually so much better than living on the street where they could be abused or, or killed any day or, and and at least they're getting some food there. And I'm like, these are both terrible solutions. I hate both of these solutions. And and there are no great solutions, but you can elevate a few children in, in some homes and make a bigger difference for them. And then they will break the cycle for, for their generations. Um, right. And, and they, they will hopefully find the healing that they need so that they don't pass on the abuse and the, and the poverty and the abandoned children um, that, that they received, right? And so right. love is the answer. And, um, and finding the people that are already kicking butt and doing great with kids 
and elevating them and helping them get the resources that they need to be able to do better. Um, that's really what we're about. And not have burnout. I mean, I imagine if you don't have the funding you need, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. If, if you, you know. can't, if you can never take vacations and you, 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 you always have to be the only parent there. I've seen a lot of burned out, uh, orphanage workers over the years. And, um, that's a, that's a tremendous risk and it happens more often than you'd imagine. Again, this is dark, dark stuff, this world, this world, but, but it's so important much- that we, that we have that that we have that, these conversations. I mean, it's so important that we're aware um, because I think we spend so much time, especially in America, arguing about stuff that I'm like, do you realize what happens in the rest of the world? Mm. You know, like, are you aware? And, or just in a different neighborhood, you know, or just something you're not aware of in your own neighborhood. You know, it's well, just, we get so myopic in our own view and our own life and our own way of being that we, argue about stuff that is meaningless to the bigger scheme of what our society needs. Like, you know, not having beaten children. Right. Well, I don't think we can talk much about child abuse in this country only because nobody's got a great idea on how to solve it. And this country is built on solving stuff. Right. And, and you don't solve child abuse. You, you don't um, in, in a systematic way without reverting to authoritarianism, like you said. Right. So, right. so as or a result, the government raising the children which, which cuts is, off the ability to, you know, we need to be touched and loved and, you know, and, you know, quite blank point, um, you know, talking about dark stuff, you know, having been molested myself from two and a half to 14, if you had asked me at eight years old, what love was, I would have pointed to him. And yet as recovery has happened in my life, there are still great lessons for me in what happened to me in that, but it right. took having a lot of, you know, therapy having a lot of, you know, Jesus in my life, you know, I believe in the atonement of Jesus Christ and hope that I could make a different life for my children. And that's a huge motivating factor to raise my children in a different environment. I'm not blaming my parents for the sexual abuse at all. They did not know that that was happening there. You know, as many homes, there's lots of different things that were happening and distractions. And he used that to get in there. But um, I don't think we're going to solve these things as long as we take it away from individuals to have control over their own lives and to be able to affect them, which means you have the capacity for people to screw it up. And so so we we just have to decide to be the people like you were saying, you're telling me it at your home or sorry, at the tribe house when we were visiting that you found uh, a neighbor that you could confide in and that she protected you. Rita DeBry. Read it she, she helped you feel loved and, and yeah. secure and safe in an environment. And told where you me I was amazing home. and I could have a great life. I mean, and nobody knows, nobody would know Rita DeBry's name except that I share it. And she's, she would, she's so embarrassed when I talk about her, you know, she's just like Lita. But if I weren't a speaker or an author, nobody would ever know, but I would still be living an awesome functioning life. First time I stood on a stage, I was 37, 38 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, I was already a functioning human living a life, raising children productively, all of that. But how many Rita DeBrys are there needed in the world? How many of those are needed? Well, there are as many as there are children, because even if my home was perfect, we still need the aunts and uncles in our lives. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. We still need that. Every child needs others in their life to tell them and you know, people get in the big debate about over gay marriage. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care the sex of the people loving the kid. I don't care. We just, every kid needs 
multiple people loving them. So we don't have burnout with single parents, right? We don't have burnout with orphanage kids. Is this idealistic? Absolutely. But why not shoot for idealistic, right? Without authoritarianism. That's right. That's exactly right. And I am so, like I said before, I'm not a thoughtful person. <laughs> in, in this way, like it requires, it requires. Yeah, you're a cold, hard, keep... mean person who doesn't do anything good in the world. <laughs> I don't think I'm a bad person, but I also don't think I'm a good person. I just try to think less of myself in general, but I, I just, I don't, I don't think it helps anything to think of myself as a good person. How's that? I don't think it makes me a better person to think no, of actually, myself as a good I, person. I, I do agree with, um, I have a whole entire speech that I give to church groups that I have titled, there are no good people. And it's because when we're sort of going, I am so good. Look at how righteous I am. Right. right, right. That that means there's other people that are bad. And yet I want to give every person who, you know, unquote, quote, unquote, bad, the opportunity to become better. And when we label people bad, we're putting them in a box. And then likewise, when we're saying, oh, I'm so good. I've had people literally do terrible things and say, but I'm a good person. I'm like, I not debating your value as a human being. I'm saying this action was not okay. And the defense to, I can't do bad things is because I'm a good person is not a defense. That's a a fallacy in our thinking. And so I agree with you that we need to, you know, it's that tightrope, right? That we need to have enough humility to go about trying to do good in the world but mm-hmm. not so much pride and ego that we think we've already done it. I look at the people that are actually boots on the ground, making a difference for kids and I'm helping them, but I'm not the hero in the story at all. I'm, and I think that that's, that's the important thing is that when we do the work of angels, we often are tempted. I'm taking this from Arbiter Institute. Um, we're often tempted to see ourselves as angels that deserve more or deserve respect. And, and the biggest challenge I have um, is I need to be a healthy person so I can actually do this work with the right boundaries. And uh, another way of putting it is the best thing you can do for any relationship in life is to get healthy. And um, mm-hmm. we're, we're looking at uh, EMDR and some other trauma therapy for, for orphanages. And we, we found a partner that does a lot of trauma work in Haiti and teaching these, awesome. these new techniques to, to a lot of these um, homes um, and to therapists that we can contract with um, to b- actually provide healing to these kids. But, you know, I just met with a therapist yesterday with my wife and I'm like, you know, I have some un- unresolved trauma that will help me be a more loving, kind person. I, I let's, let's do this. Let's do some e- EMDR therapy. Yeah. And I can't even tell you what it stands for, but except for, you know, you move. Your I know what you're talking about. You. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, have, but, but, I have a book on my nightstand that a friend yeah. sent me. Um, but it keeps the score really kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. But I, I've always said, people, healthy people have gone to therapy. And, you know, when you and I uh, were, I I think I'm a little bit older than you are, Kent, but, you know, we grew up in an era when, you know, people had to go to a shrink to get their head shrunk. And we didn't have a term called mental health. We called people crazy, (laughs) Mm. right? We shamed people for having gaps in their well-being mentally. And we need, I think that's, you know, if that were one solution for the world, is that we remove the shame from taking care of your mental health. Just like we don't shame people when they go to the doctor. I don't know. Some people do, but you know what I mean? (laughs) That's right. Uh, You know, we don't shame people for working on who they are. And I think it's really like in the professional world, 
it's really an instinct. And maybe it's just like the speaker coach world that, um, you know, I'm a speaker, I do some coaching, but that, you know, if you put yourself up as this expert that you can't ever be weak because you've already arrived. And that is such a place of fallacy because I believe we're always as human beings, as human souls becoming more. And so what I knew at 40, I'm going to know a heck of a lot more at 41 and even more at 45, right. And 50 and 60 and 70. And if we're ever like, well, I can't change. That is what I would term as the definition of damnation, not a place of burning in hell, you know, like, you know, the, the theology might put out there, but literally not willing to become more. That's a great, that's a great point. I don't know. I just, I, I love the, I love building teams. I love my, um, my role as a facilitator for, for great teamwork. And like my strength is not actually in the programmatic side of things. Like um, I don't know how to help orphanage directors with all their issues, even though I've been in this space for a very long time. Um, my, my role is like, I'm bringing my own talents to the game and saying, Hey, uh, let's build good reports. Let's, <laughs> let's have great onboarding and hiring processes. Let's do all these things that, that will allow us to be able to scale up our, our influence for good. And I would just, you know, suggest to, to all of the people that might be listening to this, uh, that we all have our own strengths and our own gifts that we can bring to bear in this, in this, in, in this work, if you care about kids. And it's not going to look the same for everybody. And you don't have to like love kids and love playing with kids or doing things with kids to help kids. You can bring, a, there's so many strengths and skills that you can bring. Absolutely. To and people can donate and that's good too. Money, money, money still, still solves a lot of problems with food. Yeah. And, I mean, and housing um, and stuff. we, I think if anything, that if it's in our own homes as parents, as as children, if we're still in a home, as, you know, people in society, as people, as citizens of the world, we all have a different role to play and to do our role well. So um, in closing, because <laughs> I could talk to you forever and you've made me cry three times. So well done. Um, That's my goal. That was my only goal. I'm just yeah, like, how many that times uncaring, can I get to cry? Yeah, the uncaring mean person stuff. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to make Lita cry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, what is your fuel kit? What is something you put in your life that lights you up and maybe a daily habit or affirmation? What, what is it that gives you strength? Meditation is actually probably one of the most effective tools that I've, I found. Just the mindfulness practice um, helps me not get angry as often. I, 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 I was raised to be an angry person and letting mm-hmm. that go in my life has been very challenging because that was such a source of fuel and energy for me throughout my life. Wow. Um, I, I got rid of caffeine too, like, uh, two months ago, like for the first time in like seven years, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not addicted anymore. And everybody's like, I, I can't wait to be like, I'm going to save this for an afternoon Kent because morning Kent is caffeinated and he's really mean sometimes. And it's true. <laughs> like that, that intensity, that just energy is, it's not, it's not, it's not as effective. And I'm, I'm, I'm finding that, uh, what actually helps me get up every day is just knowing that people need me to help them get unstuck that I have gifts that are mine and that are easy for me, but are incredibly valuable and hard for other people. And uh, there's a difference between playing in your zone of excellence and things that you're good at, but don't give you energy. And playing right, your zone right. of use, if you're familiar with Hendrick's work. Yeah, absolutely. I, that I totally agree with that. Cause if I tried to go around creating systems, I would spend three weeks trying to create right. a system you could do in five minutes. 
Right. And my, 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 my gift is actually knowing what's next for people and helping them get unstuck and building teams and recruiting and finding the right place for them on the team and helping them be effective and telling them I love them and, and supporting them. And that's, that's pretty much all I'm good for around here. I don't actually do much of the real work anymore. Um, I just kind of help people get unstuck. So my work is a little bit invisible at this stage of the game, but uh, that's really what I love. And that's what gets me up every day. So it's well, like, we, it's not kids, I, it's not kids, but it might be tacos. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But Cause it, you're in training for tacos. But you gotta, okay. you gotta, you gotta say that like, I love kids, but I love seeing kids connect with people that like love kids and like love, love playing with kids. I like to play with kids a lot, but I'm tired after a little bit. Um, and I, I know other people like get tremendous energy from that. And I'm like, let's give these people all the support in the world to help these kids. Yeah. Those are glad we need all the people we need yep. all the, we need all the, all the niceness. Right. Um, okay. What is your oxygen? This may be something that others may not see that is a part of everything that you have become. Uh, my oxygen is humor. I started improv classes about five years ago. Love it. Um, at comedy sports and Provo, and then done some work with Improv Broadway as well and, and gone classes. And it terrified me the first time I, I, like, for a full year, actually, at practice, I would get up every, every time just to practice and play with friends. And it terrified me just to be that seen and vulnerable and feel stupid. And, and that was really important therapy for me, I feel like. Um, that yeah. was probably the most effective therapy I've done besides meditation over the years and, and also journaling and writing my, my, my life story to that point and seeing it in a new light. Right. Cause I, I've Very come cool. from a, a history of abuse myself. And, and so humor for me is like the fuel or the oxygen, I should say that um, it's just, it's just the way I see the world. It's just, it's just I around think- me. And I like to find the funny in everything and, and make and crack people up. That's my, that's what I really, really love to do. The irony is, um, I can't remember exactly where I read this, if it was like an actual study or something that a therapist was just saying in their observation that they had seen, that most of the people that were the funniest actually had the most traumatic backgrounds. And you look at like Robin Williams, right? Sure, sure. And uh, humor is a, a great way to diffuse some, <laughs> some ah, friction, right? Okay, so what is your heat? This is a unique gift or talent you give the world, the thing that you are the most proud of. Besides my carne asada recipe, <laughs> uh, I think, and, and, and the hot sauce heat. I make that, that's the literal heat, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. The gift I give to the world, um, I am a, I would say I am a researcher by nature. Like when something matters to me, I will know everything I possibly can about it. And people will reach out, like, when I went through my suicidal depression eight years ago, um, I was, I learned a lot about nutrition, uh, cutting out gluten, whether it was glyphosate, you know, the roundup that's in food that, that was in the wheat I was eating, or whether it's gluten itself, it, it, it changed my life to just not have that in my diet. And my depression. And so you're saying me. that helped your mental health big time, big time. And yeah. just learning everything I could about like my genes and what kinds of uh, nutrition I needed. Uh, I, I went to a doctor and, and had my genes sequenced and all this inf- new information came to me about like, oh, because of this, you need this. And because of this, this isn't gonna work. I, I need to eat a lot of eggs. Choline is gonna help my brain and all this stuff. And just leaving a very low energy state to become a higher energy person. Um, that, that, that is just 
part of it for me. So when I find something that matters, I just cannot get enough of it. And especially in service for somebody else. So as a, as a consultant, I was con- like in the shower, I'm thinking about clients issues. I'm thinking about how do I fix this problem in their lives? And I'm reading all the books. And I'm look, just researching that. And that's really, that's, that's like the, the invisible source of, of like, what is just driving me? Like I have to know, so I'm not unprepared the next time. And so that, yeah, I would say that's I love it. Really the, the heat for me is like, I have to know, I have to not make the same mistakes that I made in the past. And I have to know how to protect myself and other people I love in the future from, from lack of knowledge, mostly. Well, Ken, I have to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed this interview, even though I cried. Um, and uh, I really appreciate your humility um, going about doing good in the world. Yes. But, you know, as someone who is loving your family and, you know, just being a citizen in a community that rubs up against my community. And I have seen you to always show up to be a very kind despite your protestations of not being a nice person, um, very kind. And I think that um, my listeners can learn a lot about how that interplay between humility and getting to work. And I love that you shared that you've had some mental health struggles because I think so often we get this false idea that mental health struggles limit our capacity to do good in our own lives and in lives of others. And that there couldn't be further a bigger poopy lie no, your, your weaknesses end up becoming your strengths. Absolutely. It's where we learn empathy. Right. And empathy is where we can affect the our world from our own homes out. So That's exactly right. That's exactly thanks right. Well, you're for very kind. Um, being a truly hot person and being in training to be on Share Your Hotness podcast. I see how I made a little joke there about heat. I like but it. I can't eat spicy food. So I hope we can still be friends. You know what? I, I do it so other people don't have to. Maybe. Thank you. I appreciate that. Having had colon issues, um, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Your truly, your note is truly sacrifice. So if people ask you what good you do in the world, you can say, well, I, you know, I help orphanages run better around the world. But really, really what I do is I eat the hot things for the people that can't. That's right. Somebody's yeah. got to do it. Somebody's got to. So... Thank you so much, Kent White, um, for being on this episode of Share Your Hotness with Lita Free. My pleasure. Take care. The Share Your Hotness podcast is produced by Van Garrett Media. Lita Green is the host and creator of the podcast. Chris Van Garrett is the editor, producer, and music director. Shayla Dawn is our research coordinator. Join us next week for another episode of the Share Your Hotness podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media.